You are listening to the Hill Country Bible Church podcast. To learn more about Hill Country Bible Church, including our gathering times, visit hcbc.com. Good morning, Hill Country. I want to welcome those that are watching online and uh, those that are at our other venues, Steiner Ranch, etc. In between services, I got some text messages and emails from people that were watching online. Friends of mine said, I didn't even know you could preach, so I was really... (laughs) felt good. Uh, but it's great to be here with you. Um, it's an honor to be here. As I mentioned to the, the uh, congregation at the first service, uh, I have preached in this uh, sanctuary from this pulpit a number of times before, but they've always been for funerals of law enforcement um, folks. And it's great to be with you this morning preaching to a live, mostly audience. So good, good for that. I I also have to observe, as I did then, it's the first time in 47 years of ministry they've removed a third of the chairs right before I speak. (laughs) So, um, don't know if that means we're all going to be praying in the middle by the end of the service or or, uh, how that works. But it is good to be with you and full uh, disclosure, my wife and I, uh, a little bit before Easter of this year, uh, began attending here at Hill Country. And uh, as we are in the, the kind of rounding the turn in that final phase of our lives, realizing that the heartbeats in front of us are fewer than the ones behind us, we were trying to find a place we could call a church home, uh, and we couldn't find a better one than Hill Country Bible Church. And that's particularly because of the focus on reaching every man, woman, and child in the greater Austin area with the good news of Jesus Christ. When, when you're getting picky how you spend your heartbeats, you want to make sure you're spending them on the things that God will go good job. So I'm trying to make up for some lost time. Hopefully towards this end phase, God will say, yes, good. Glad you caught up there. Uh, how many of you have been enjoying this series on being Christian in a hostile world? Man, I've really, I've really been enjoying it, even though, you know, pastoring for almost five decades, um, thinking about how to navigate through this world as it changes, almost at breathtaking speed, and live consistently with the calling of Christ on your life is not a small challenge. And it used to be that you could kind of isolate where those challenges came from, like, okay, I'm not going to go see that movie because I know where they're going, or I'm not going to watch that television show, I know what that's all about. But now, uh, there really isn't any place where the drumbeat of this cultural shift is is being heard, including at work. Uh, How many of you have had to attend some kind of mandatory training for your job in the last year, year and a half? Anybody? Okay, a bunch of us. Well, about four or five weeks ago, I was in a training. It was the last of a series that we started back in the beginning of March, and it was a training around leadership that my agency, the Austin Police Department, sponsored. And I was really into it. Leadership is one of the passions, one of the three great passions of my life, and so I was excited and excited that we were nearing the completion of the series, and I'm sitting there in in this class, 
And the instructor, otherwise is an outstanding class, excellent instructor, but he is talking about communication and the importance for leaders to watch you know, their attitude and their communication. And he uttered this sentence. He said, you have to allow your truth and their truth to exist equally. And my head exploded. It did. And I, there's some, you know, there's some things I just can't swallow. And that was it. And so I raised my hand and I got the big sigh from the room because anytime <laughs> you're in a mandatory training and you raise your hand, everybody just made this longer. Thank you. <laughs> so I raised my hand and the, the instructor said, uh, yes, you have a question. I said, well, not so much a question as an observation. And he said, what is it? And I said, when you say allow their truth and my truth to exist equally, I can't buy that. For me, there are not multiple truths. Truth is a sacred word. Something is either true or it's not true. Now, if you want to say, allow their perspective or perception and my perspective or perception to exist equally, I'm all over that all day long. But there aren't multiple truths. Now, nobody said amen in that room. <laughs> but there was a lot of head nodding because it was a law enforcement context. This is a culture that depends on having facts and truth. I mean, if you saw it as a kid or if you maybe saw Netflix or Hulu uh, Dragnet, you know that, that Joe Friday goes up and says, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Right? Well, there's not multiple truths. There's one. Imagine a, a, a bank robber who, as he's being interviewed by the police officers who have caught him, says, now, it may be your truth that I robbed the bank. My truth is I took out a long-term uncollateralized loan <laughs> with indefinite payback terms. <laughs> or we're in a courtroom and the person raises their hand to testify and say, I promise to tell my truth, my whole truth, and nothing but my truth. So help me whoever it is we're swearing to these days. Those are on the face, those are ridiculous things, and yet we have, been, we have been brought up in a culture to believe that there are multiple truths out there, many of which compete with each other. How can two things be true if they don't agree? Now, what we're facing is not new. In fact, if we go all the way back to 1978, this gentleman, Jean-Francois Lyotard, was commissioned by the Association of Universities of Quebec to study and report on the impact of technology in 1978, the impact of te technology on our view, our understanding, the world's view of truth and fact. And he was the first one ever to use the word postmodern to describe the culture. Prior to that, it was just a term that was used with regard to a certain kind of art. But he used the word postmodern, and more than that, he jumped on a term, 
he used for the first time the word meta-narrative. Now, if you guys roll back the tape a little bit a few weeks, Pastor Tim, when he was preaching, talked about two stories, that depending on the story that you believe is the story that you live. When he used the word story, he was using it in the same sense that Lyotard used it in the word meta-narrative. And here's the summation of what he concluded. Number one, that meta-narratives, the grand stories, have been abandoned. That is the traditional meta-narrative. So, for example, the Judeo-Christian meta-narrative is abandoned as false. We were just singing about Jesus rising out from the tomb and gaining victory and fighting the battles for us. Well, that meta-narrative is false. All those grand meta-narratives have been, have been dispelled. And in their place, everyone is free to come up with their own narrative. You, you want to personify this Right about the same time that he was writing this, an actress by the name of Shirley MacLaine discovered the New Age movement and wrote a book about her experience. And she described herself walking on a beach in California, and she was thinking about what she just read, and it, and it said that all of us inside of us inside have little gods. And so she began to focus and meditate on that. And as she's walking down, she said, the thought just got bigger and bigger and bigger in her head. I'm God. I'm God. I'm God. And she began shouting on the beach. I am God. I am God. And I imagine the king of all creation in the heavens, sitting on his throne, like Horton hears a who. I am God. I am God. No, you're not. <laughs> when everyone is free to have their own meta narrative, everybody can be their own God. And the end result is everyone's narrative then has to be accepted as being equally valid. So the world we live in today that has grown out of that postmodern condition is that you can't say this is true. You can only say this is my truth. Well, today we're going to talk about being Christian in an unchristian world, and we're not going to talk about your truth or my truth. We're going to talk about the truth. Because when we abandon the concept of God's truth, we, re we sentence ourselves to live a lie. When we abandon God's truth, we are forced to embrace a lie, just as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, that what may be known about God has been plain to us, but if we reject it, then God will give us over to embrace a lie that leads ultimately to our destruction. So when we're talking about being Christian in a hostile world, there are three big deceptions that drive the modern culture. The postmodern view of the world really centers around these three things, in my view. The first are deceptions around the issue of our possessions. The second, deceptions around the issue of power. And thirdly, and most importantly, deceptions around the issue of purpose. Now, you guys will let me unpack those three, and we will just leave them there. That's good because I have the clicker and a lot of slides left, so 
got to do this. So uh, around the idea of possessions, these are kind of the supporting cast of lies that support this idea. The first is that possessions will make me happy. I can remember when I was much younger, much, much earlier in my marriage, I wanted a motorcycle. Oh, yes. And all of a sudden, all I could see on the road were motorcycles. And everyone was like a calling to my heart. You need one of these. I was convinced, number one, I was going to save so much money on gas driving that motorcycle. Number two, the wind through my hair. I had more of it back then. The wind through my hair would be absolutely exhilarating. Number three, I would look really cool. I got a motorcycle. A few years later, and a little bit of road rash later, I got rid of my motorcycle. But I was convinced that motorcycle would make me happy. It didn't make me happy. How many of you have ever bought something thinking, this, I'm, when I get this, I'm going to really be happy. When I get this house, I'm going to really be happy. When I get this car, I'm going to really be happy. When I can fit into these clothes, I'm going to really be happy. <laughs> Possessions will make me happy. And the corollary is prosperity and convenience are absolute necessities. Those are the goals of my life. I want to be prosperous. I want to have a lot of stuff. And I want everything to be conveniently available to me. I, I mentioned earlier that I've done a number of funerals in this building. I've done over 350 funerals in my lifetime, in my ministry. The one thing I have never seen is a trailer hitch on a hearse. You can't take it with you. You're going to leave it to somebody. And trust me, having been part of the conversations while they're planning to bury the loved one, most of the time they're fighting already around the stuff that you've left behind. That's the way it works. Possessions will make me happy and prosperity and convenience are the goals. More is better. And if I want it, I need it. If I want it, I need it. I've got to have it. And that makes me significant. The more stuff I have, the more significance I have. The more success I have. How many of you have taken the Dave Ramsey financial peace course? What's the first speed bump in that course? convincing us Christians who are taking the class that we don't need it because we want it. Delayed needs gratification. We've been so shaped that if we want, advertising is pounding us all the time. Oh, you've got to have it. You need it. If you want it, then you must get it. And we can't even be biblical stewards until we overcome that mindset that says, I've got to have it. My possessions are that important to me. The second deception area is around power. So power it goes to the issue of who's directing my life. And the underlying thoughts here are, I'm in charge of my life. There isn't any authority other than me. Therefore, nobody can tell me what to do. We sound like a bunch of three-year-olds sometimes. Don't tell me what to do. Police officer pulls you over. You can't tell me what to do. You have no right to do that. Because anyone that restricts my freedom is wrong and bad. 
even though sometimes exercising that freedom is the essence of self-destruction. Those are my deceptions around power. And then finally, most importantly, comes to the deceptions around purpose. Why do I say this is important? Because without a purpose in life, life itself is meaningless. If all we're doing is just sucking down groceries and wind and no other reason to be here on the planet, then life itself has no meaning. And despair is all that's left. So what happens? Now life doesn't have any intrinsic value. There, if there's no purpose, that means there's no purposer. That means that, that those few cells that have come together and the spark of life has responded, and that child is now growing in the womb of its mother, that means there's no master planner who's, as, as it says in Psalm 139, weaving that child together in its mother's womb and breathing divine supernatural purpose into it so that when it's born, that purpose will be fulfilled and God's kingdom will be advanced. Everybody in this room was built by God for a reason. Everybody in this room was designed by God with his purpose in mind. Take that away. There's no purpose. There's no purposer. There's no meaning to life. There's no value to life. I, in this system, get to determine my purpose. Whatever I feel like doing, that's my purpose. And my self-esteem is what gives me significance. Now, those are all kind of understandable, but let me put each one of them in biblical language. The deception around possessions in biblical language would be called greed. The deception around power in biblical language would be called rebellion. The deception around purpose in biblical language would be called idolatry. And this is the cultural milieu in which we sit. This is what we're bombarded with constantly. Greed, loss of any sense of reality about how we use possessions, rebellion against all forms of power from the classroom to the courtroom, and an absolute idolatry where we have put ourselves on the throne of our lives. Now that's depressing. I mean, when you look at that, that's the world we live in. We can't change that message. We can't change that. Here's what happens. When we see this hostility, it generates a response. I've, working with police officers, I've come to understand when people are under enormous stress that there's a part of their brain, the amygdala, that activates, and that amyg the amygdala is all about self-preservation. So when we're threatened, we have a response that kicks in, and it's called the fight, flight, or freeze response. We either fight whatever it is that threatens us, or we run from whatever it is that threatens us, or we stand there and try to act like a potted plant, blending in with the surroundings so maybe it'll ignore us and leave us alone. Now, in terms of those three responses have historically been how the church responded to, a, to the culture. That is, we tried to fight it. We tried to conquer it with armies. It didn't work. 
We tried to run from it. We tried to go to monasteries or go into enclaves where we isolated ourselves from the culture around us. That didn't work. And we tried to blend in. Maybe they won't notice us. And that didn't work. And I'll tell you why. It didn't work because that's never been God's plan for God's people. Ever. Never what God wanted from the church. So when I looked at this series, being Christian in a hostile world, I said, I'm looking for how can I live day to day in a way that honors God and doesn't trick me into trying to fight, flee, or freeze from this culture that I find myself in. And that leads me to a whole different response, another way. There aren't just, there isn't just one letter that Peter wrote, there's two of them. And I, I want to I ask you to look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2 and read with me verse 11. We're going to read 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now listen carefully to these words. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. Live, don't fight, don't run, don't try to blend in. Live such a distinctive life among the pagans that they will see and glorify God. Now, when I use the word pagan, somebody's offended. Right? That's not a common term. We don't use, you, don't, you don't go over and you know, introduce yourself to your neighbors and say, Hi, I'm Rick. I just wanted to meet my pagan neighbors. <laughs> what do you pagans eat anyway? I'm happy to. Let's take the word and put it back in its cultural setting. When Peter used the word pagan, that was common vernacular for the culture. The culture of Peter's day was really primarily governed by Greek philosophy. And Greeks and Jews were oil and water because the Jews embraced the truth. Shema Israel, Adonai, Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord is one. That confession set them at odds with the rest of the world. What? You mean Zeus isn't God? You mean Mars isn't a God? You mean Venus isn't? No. There is one God, and he is the Lord. The Greeks, on the other hand, not only embraced a multiple of, multiple of deities, but they also embraced a lifestyle that was primarily built around sensual pleasure and enjoyment. So whereas the Jews were saying, we live to honor God, the Greeks were saying, we live to honor the flesh. Eat, drink, and, tomorrow for, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. So when he says pagan, he means the culture that is antithetical to what we embrace, what we believe. A perfect way, to, a, a perfect fit for us today, would you agree? Live such good lives in the culture around you that is hostile to the things you believe 
not so that you're fighting them or running from them or trying to blend in, but so they will see that distinctiveness and they will glorify God. Live as a Christian in a way, I read it one time, I think it was on a billboard. It said, live your life as a Christian in such a way that if you were on trial for being a Christian, there'd be no doubt about your guilt. Live in such a way that if you're on trial for being a Christian, there'd be no doubt about your guilt. Live distinctively. So now I'm curious. I'm reading Peter. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. They're going to see and glorify God because of the way you live. And I want to know more about that. How do I do that, God? Because my natural instinct is to run or fight or freeze. I want to know how I can live this differently. And that's where we come to the end of 2 Peter. Will you look with me at 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll unpack this for the remainder of the time that we have together this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Full stop. Put on the brakes. To stimulate us to wholesome thinking. When's the last time you used wholesome in a sentence? I think the last time I heard the word outside of reading it in the Bible was a milk commercial. What does wholesome mean? What does it mean to be stimulated to wholesome thinking? Well, I had to do some digging. And the word wholesome means pure. The word wholesome means without flaw. The word wholesome means sincere. The word wholesome means normal. Just think about that for a minute. Peter is writing to us in the midst of a culture war where we have a culture that's hostile to us and he's saying you live in such a way that you give that people will give glory to God as they see the way you live and the way you get there is to start with normal thinking. Well Peter are you saying I'm abnormally thinking? You better believe it. We're kind of like the Israelites, you know? God got Israel out of Egypt in a day. It took him over 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. They were trained to think like Egyptians. We've been trained to think like the world. So much so that we think abnormal is normal and normal is abnormal. Peter says, I want you to think wholesomely. I want, let, me, let me capitalize on that word sincere for just a second. Back in Peter's day, people would buy sculpture. That's how they decorated their home. They didn't have Kirklands, but they had a local sculpture. And the sculptor, would com they could commission a work, and maybe you'd get a sculpture of yourself, or you'd get a sculpture of your wife or your kids, or a Greek deity, or maybe a, a heroic figure, 
or maybe you'll get a, a bust of Caesar because you want to invite him over and score some points with him when he comes over to eat. When the sculptors would work on chiseling out the stone, sometimes that process created flaws in the sculpture. I, I, I don't know about you, but I've tried to work with stone one time in my life doing a patio, little patio stone, and I tried to break the stones exactly, you know, to fit where I had a hole, and yeah, it doesn't work that way. Like, there's hidden flaws in that. If you don't hit it just right, you're done. Well, when they get a crack in a statue after they've been working on it, they don't have the option of destroying that statue. So what they did was they developed a way to hide the flaw. They found that if you took granite, if you took the dust from the marble that you're working in or the granite that you're working in and you mixed it with wax and then you just coated the statue with that, it would fill all the cracks and crevices and at the end it'd polish up and look great and look flawless. The only problem was in the hot Mediterranean sun, what happened to the wax? And so you got Uncle Fred melting on the mantle and running down and revealing all the cracks and flaws. So they developed a way of assessing sculpture to determine if it was authentic, if it had integrity, if it was wholesome. They said it was sculpted without wax, sincere in Latin. So to be sincere is to be without wax, to be without hypocrisy, to be single-minded. And now he says, I want you to be wholesome in your thinking, to be sincere, to be without flaw. Well, how do we get there, Peter? Please tell us. Well, it starts first with that last part of the sentence. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Guess what he just said? He said, wholesome thinking has to be biblically centered. Wholesome thinking has to be biblically centered. This book is not among the truths in the world. It is the truth. This book tells us God's story and what God has for us and God wants for us and what God expects from us. It tells us what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, what is good and what is evil. And the problem is there are way too many of us that don't know this book. We know about this book. We know pieces of this book. We know what other people tell us about this book, but do we know this book for ourselves? Has this truth been ingrained within us. If, if I have a prayer for, for the church in the 21st century, for us here today, it's that we would all get such a hunger for this book that we couldn't put it down. We would have such a hunger for this book that when we had a question about life, we would go here first. We had such a hunger for this book that when this book spoke, we would conform ourselves to what this book says, not to the pressures of the culture around us. First thing wholesome thinking is, it is biblically centered. The second thing it is, it's focused 
on the end. Look at, here's how he said it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. You realize how much of 2 Peter he has been focusing on the end times, that there is a coming day of judgment, not something you hear about a lot today. Here he says, the day of the Lord will come, not may come, like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. In other words, not only are we biblically centered, but we are finish line oriented. That is, the goal of our lives is not to retire and live on a beach in the Cayman Islands. The goal of our lives is not to have bigger and better of whatever. The goal of our lives is to live in such a way that when we come to the end of our life, we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And when that happens, we will be part of the greatest victory celebration in the history of all creation, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's not a dream. That's not a wish. That's a promise that God has made in his word, and it will be exactly fulfilled. And if we live our lives with that end goal in mind, we won't get easily distracted to the left or the right. Having that end goal in mind, that victory that we are assured of, says the culture's not gonna win. Why do we need to fight against the culture? It's not gonna win anyway. Why do we need to run from the culture? It's not gonna win anyway. Why do we blend in with the culture? It's not gonna win anyway. Let's get on the winning side and live according to what God calls us to live up to. Then Peter moves to the third, and this is the final point of what wholesome thinking is. It's biblically centered. It's end time focused, finish line focused. And then he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, it's not only biblically centered and finish line focused it's also evangelistically oriented see god is being patient holding back that day of judgment until that last one comes in that he already knows is coming and he's chosen us to be the vehicle through which that person is going to get reached why why do we care about every man, woman, and child in the greater Austin area hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because one of those may be that one that when that one comes in, God says, we're done. Time to go. See, God calls us to live in a way that says, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. I'm a stranger and an alien here. I'm built for better things, for eternity. And I'm going to live my life every day with that distinction in mind. 
I know that there are people that are watching, got some of the text messages in between the services who don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Today's your day that God is beckoning you to come to him. Today is the day, 49 years ago, I made that same decision and my life was changed forever. I want to invite you, if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you can do that right now as we're all going to pray together. Could you join me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this distinctive calling that you have placed on our lives. That we get to live with eternity in mind. God, thank you that you're not calling us out of the culture. You're not even calling us to change the culture. You're calling us to live authentic lives of faith. And let the culture see that there is a difference that you make. God, for the people that are wanting in this moment to make a commitment of faith to you, I pray that you would just speak to their hearts. Let them realize before they are done watching or being in this service, let them realize that moment when you embrace them fully. And until that day, Lord, we stand before you. Help us. Give us the strength through the power of the Holy Spirit to live this distinctive Christian life. In the name of Jesus, we pray and say, Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen. To experience everything we have to offer, visit us online at hcbc.com. And as always, thank you for listening to the Hill Country Bible Church Podcast.